Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. As I said, we'll be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 6. Uh, we're spending a lot of time in this chapter because uh, I think that it, it begins to unpack the, uh, the foundations that we see about um, what this is. I think it's a, it's a critical point when we think about uh, timeline in, in the, the nation of Israel. I think it's uh, important as we think about uh, most people that uh, grew up, uh, you know, in the Old Testament would have had some reference of this in their mind. This was what they talked about. This is what they wept about. This is what they turned back to. This is what they said, well, it's not as good as Solomon's temple. So it's foundational in the sense of the big uh, moment. It's, it's foundational in a sense of the promises of God ever since he, he called uh, them out of Exodus that he said he's going to dwell in their, he's going to um, tell them which mountain to build on and he's going to dwell there in amongst his people. So it's pivotal there. Uh, there's a practical reason why we're spending so much time is that uh, just in this busy time uh, in Presbyterian uh, PCA life, uh, you know, last week I was away at a review of Presbytery Records. Next week I'll be away in Memphis in, in the General Assembly. So we have a chance to be able to, uh, you know, remember what we've forgotten a little bit about, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but I think it's, it's very important also when we think about just uh, the people of Israel and that this would have been a visual thing for them, something that they would have seen something they would have uh, heard about, talked about. Um, so last time we looked at the temple in the moment of that, that timeline, of that progression of how God reveals himself, that uh, ever since uh, the beginning of time, he, he made a promise that he's going to come down and redeem his people through the snake crusher. And we see these promises unfold through the story of Genesis. We see these promises fulfilled in the time of Exodus and carried on into the promised land underneath Joshua. Uh, the, the failure of the people underneath uh, in Joshua and Judges and even in First and Second Samuel, we've seen all these critical things uh, come as we see these promises, the same promise, the covenant of grace expand throughout this time. Um, and here, as we mentioned last time, that here God is, is seeking a way to, to have worshipers. That he merely does not just save the people out of the land of Egypt just to, to be free, that they can do what is right in their own eyes. Actually, that's the problem. They're doing what is right in their own eyes. They're worshiping uh, gods of the other nations or worshiping the God of the Bible like other nations. And so here is a critical thing as we think about the temple and how God is to be worshipped and how he uh, commands us to be able to worship. So let me uh, read our passage tonight and then we'll see how this uh, all comes together. Uh, but before we get to the main uh, portion of our passage, there seems to be somewhat of an uh, interruption in, in the passage of, of 1 Kings chapter 6. Almost like, oh, I don't know where to put this. Well, let's just put it in 6. You know, no one's going to really enjoy 6 anyway, so let's try and wake them up somewhat. And it seems, again, like an interruption in verses 11 to 13 where it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So what we see in this passage is a warning 
uh, promise as they're often together. The warning is that uh, where you see that word if, if you walk in my statutes, if you obey my rules, if you keep my commandments. Now this uh, basically sounds very similar to what David says to Solomon as he's, David is on his deathbed. He he's, speaks to Solomon, his son, whom he knows is going to be his successor. And he says, I'm about to go the way in all the earth. Be strong and serve yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. That you may prosper in all that you do, and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness in all their heart, and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now notice a couple of things that the Lord says to Solomon. Here the king is representative as the covenant head of the people. His obedience is centered on what happens to the people of God, the people of Israel. What I think you see here is that principle of that covenant headship. Leaders' actions affect the people. Leaders' actions affect the nation. I think you see this very clearly throughout the whole time of First and Second Kings. I think most clearly in the, the timeline of First and Second Kings. Uh, you saw it very clearly in the garden that here Adam is the covenantal head, not just of his marriage of uh, Eve, but also of all people. Adam's actions then affect all of his children, all of those that are under his covenant. Under, the covenant is made with one person, and then all those next are underneath his actions. Now we see this uh, most commonly in a negative aspect. Um, you see this uh, affecting the people of God. I think you see it sometimes positively in, in the book of First and Second Kings. I think uh, First and Second Kings will see that. Uh, good and bad, but most often it is bad. Now this is, uh, now does that, this make this a covenant of works? Does this make this promise that God makes to Solomon a covenant of works? He showed a covenant of grace to everyone else, but here comes Solomon. Here's a covenant of works. Um, if you do this, then I will do this. That's the covenant of works. Um, the promise is based on uh, perfect obedience. Now, I think it's very important, though, to be able to think about the order of where we find ourselves. We find ourselves that it is always grace, and grace leads to works. Always that way around in the covenant of grace. Always that work that grace begins, and then the fruit of that is uh, obedience. Never the other way around. That's exactly uh, uh, the, the covenant of works is based on that you receive this blessing because you obey perfectly. But underneath the covenant of grace, it always flows with grace first. God's grace towards his people and his people walking in that grace show forth the fruits. Um, you see that clearly in the beginning of Exodus. Right before we get to the Ten Commandments, he, we've got all this time. God redeems, saves his people, pulls them out of the house of slavery. He shows them grace. And that's why the Ten Commandments start and remind us that the, God speaks these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then the commandments. He doesn't say, obey the Ten Commandments first and then I'll save you. It's grace and then from that grace leads to works. It's always that way. Genesis 12 and 15 always begin 
faith, uh, grace through faith, and then circumcision. God doesn't say, well, circumcise your whole household and then I'll call you out of Haran. And God has already made a promise that we see even in this passage here. This promise is made to Solomon, but the promise goes back where God reminds, which I spoke to David your father. Now remember that glorious promise we spent some time looking at in 2 Samuel? Those five major headings that we saw, that this kingdom will come from David's offspring, this kingdom will be established by God, this kingdom will be built by the offspring, this kingdom will be eternal, this kingdom will be led by God's Son. All of these promises are underneath the covenant of grace. That God has promised what He will do. Now you see the warning that when we only look towards this promise ending in Solomon, Solomon can't lead an eternal kingdom. Solomon uh, will build a house, but that house will crumble, it will fall. We see that quite clearly in the timeline of history. But we find out that this promise of grace is not fulfilled in Solomon, nor any of his grandchildren or great-grandchildren, but eventually it's fulfilled in Christ. The Christ is the offspring of David that promise speaks of. Christ is sent to be able to establish God's kingdom. Christ is the one who builds his house. Christ is the one who reigns eternally. Christ is God's son. That here, that promise is built on grace, and obedience is flowing from that grace. And again, that promise. That God has said many times before, that I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will not forsake my people Israel. That he comes to be able to dwell, to be able to never leave, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. What agreements has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Here this promise is built not on Solomon's obedience, but Christ's obedience. As Christ tells his disciples to be able to go and and build his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, making disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I have commanded you to do. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The author of Hebrews put it this way and says that we should not have any love of money, that we should be content in all circumstances. Why should we be content? His argument is that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Again, let us pause here and realize this beautiful thing in all of this passage. That it is not an interruption, but a reminder of why this temple has been built in the first place. Again, when we, when we come to a passage like this and merely we just read it in isolation and not see the bigger story that God is telling and fulfilling in this chapter, in this time, that we read it merely just in text in isolation. But when we see this glorious promise and these glorious truths that are found within, we find that it's not found in the temple being built with the stones, but it's found in Christ. Not in the stones and the wood that this talks of. Always a shadow of what is coming. Now let's get back to that building of the house. See it in verses 14 to 28. Let me read those passages here. 
So Solomon built a house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house of the, on the inside with boards of cedar, from the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling. He covered them on the inside with wood. He covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits uh, on the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls. And he built his within as an inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. The house, that is, the nave in front of the inner sanctuary, was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved from the form of gourds with open flowers. All was cedar, no stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary he overlaid with gold. In the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. And the other cherub also measured ten cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. And the height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so was that of the other cherub. He put the cherubim in the innermost parts of the house, innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched the one wall, and a wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house. He overlaid the cherubim with gold. So, uh, we get to a passage like this. We begin to wonder uh, what this is. Uh, how do we understand it? Uh, we can begin maybe to picture it in our minds. Uh, the, the structure of this passage is the, the, the beginning looks at the exterior of the building. And many people believe that he doesn't spend a lot of time on the exterior of the building because people have seen the exterior of the building. They really want to know what's inside. What does it look like inside? So, Thus, the author spends a lot more time describing the inside of the building. And uh, that's where we find ourselves uh, in this passage tonight, verses 20, uh, 14 to 28, focuses on the interior, mainly in the inner sanctuary, the spot where no, uh, very few people have ever laid eyes on. Um, so, uh, we, we can see a little bit of, of why we would spend a little bit more time in this definition, but when we think about the worship of God, I think it's very important uh, when we understand a passage like this. Now, when you read a passage like this, a good thing to be able to pick up on is, is how many times words are repeated. What is focused on in this passage? We can start to, to dive into, again, the, the, uh, uh, the, the squareness, the cubeness of the, the Holy of Holies, 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. What's the significance of a cube? And we could try and dive into mathematics to be able to work that out. I'm sure someone has at some point and come up with some alphabetized numbering system to be able to unpack all of the answers that we're looking for in the Bible. 
Now, you could spend your time doing that, but I think the author of the Bible has, uh, through the inspiration of the Spirit, has, has already directed us to where we should be sending, uh, focusing our attention. Now, even if, as you read a, a passage like this, you see the words that are emphasized in here. Uh, gold uh, comes up quite frequently. Uh, the cherub or the cherubim uh, actually come up very frequently. Uh, cherub is uh, spoken of uh, six times, cherubim in plural in five times, 11 times in total in that short amount of uh, space. And when you consider also the, the, the scope of the Bible, cherubim are not mentioned very frequently at all. So this is actually an emphasized time in in all of the Bible where it's not even just as repeated a lot. It's not repeated a lot elsewhere. So the emphasis then is uh, moved up. So in the first aspect, when we think about the gold, that everything is built and everything is covered with gold. Everything is overlaid with gold. Now this has uh, a lot of practical implications. Uh, You think about the temple of God. It's a costly exercise. That this goes to great lengths to be able to fill this whole room, this inner sanctuary with gold. That there is no expense spared. And when we think about God, when we think about worship, this should drive us that, that it, we should bring Him the best. We should bring Him the best. The worship is, is centered around how we worship God because uh, He is a great God. He deserves great things. Now, we can never uh, mount to that. The, the temple uh, is, is seeking to be able to uh, dwell in there an infinite God, but yet it can be measured in cubits. Uh, we cannot amount to, to, to be able to find some level. But you've, you heard the argument from Judas. Well, couldn't this money have been given to be able to give to the poor? Well, that's an argument, right? That's an argument we, we make. Shouldn't churches be so minimal that we could be able to just give to the poor? Well, a part of a church and a drive as a church, a heart of a church, is to be able to worship God. And so that's why I think there's, there's an aspect when we think about church structure and things like that, there should be a grandness to it. Now, it obviously needs to be proportional, but there should be an aspect where we seek to be able to, to look not just into a living room, to be able to think about uh, to God, worship God, there's a grandeur into the place, the space in which we worship. Um, now, obviously, I think that that's a, uh, an argument that needs wisdom and time and place. I think that, uh, you know, in, in the means, you, you have the means to be able to do that, then I think it's great. But I think uh, there can also be a time when you go over the top. But I think, again, you, you focus on the heart, and the, 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 the heart of the message is that God deserves the best. That what we do in worship should be given the best. And thus, I think, why it's important that we uh, keep the Lord's Day set apart. Here's a day that's set apart for God. That we're not thinking and pondering of all these worldly things, of all these things that we could be doing on any other day. But here's a day in which we worship God in all of His splendor and glory. And it takes at least a day to be able to consider that. We can never repay God, but that doesn't mean that we merely just never try. That's a part of worshiping. Worshiping is is giving and serving God. I think that's, again, why we should think about who we are actually worshiping. Stephen Charnock has a great and glorious quote where he says, God is a spirit infinitely happy, therefore we must approach him with cheerfulness. He is a spirit of infinite majesty, therefore we must come before him with reverence. He is a spirit infinitely high. 
Therefore, we must offer up our sacrifices with the deepest humility. He is a spirit infinitely holy. Therefore, we must address with purity. He is a spirit infinitely glorious. We must therefore acknowledge his excellency in all that we do. In in our measures contribute to his glory by having the highest aims in his worship. He is a spirit infinitely provoked by us. Therefore, we must offer up our worship in the name of the pacifying mediator and intercessor. Here, when we think about worship, it is not merely just an everyday common task that we do. We stand before the God who made the heavens and the earth and all that is within them, the God who came and descended in amongst this creation to be able to save his people from the sins and the folly in which they live. How can we not then set our gaze higher and upward to where he is and worship him? Not merely just with our second best, but all glory and honor. I think we do this when we downplay God and make him merely a good person. Or as A.W. Tozer says, just we call him the man upstairs, like he's a man that lives in another room. I think we downplay the worship of him. But I think the second thing in this passage that we need to understand is this, this, uh, this mention of the cherub and the cherubim. Now this shows that Solomon was not merely just thinking, well, what, what do I want this temple to look like? He wasn't scrolling through Pinterest or something and seeing what other trends are happening and saying what colors and styles. But I think here is an important thing that we see Solomon understands that this temple follows a pattern. And he has some blueprint to be able to follow when he comes here. And when uh, working as a carpenter, working on old houses, I would love this aspect. You would be building an an extension on the back or something. You would be adding to the original. You would be extending it. You would make it bigger. Some of the houses, the house was so small that the extension was almost as big, if not bigger, than the house itself. There was an aspect where we sought to be able to carry on the old into the new, to make them connect, not merely just saying, let's just add an extra house on the back, but to be able to see that there's a style that you flow through, and you, you could see that it was one house. It wasn't two houses merely with a door between them. You would go in and you would see the old casings, you would seek to be able to match a style in the back to be able to have that style continue through. So I'd want to try and match those details as possible. If there was ever a time, I'd, I'd, I'd be seeking to be able to copy that. I'd find that original piece and then try and echo that in there. And I think that's exactly what Solomon is doing here, especially with the cherubim. Now, we mentioned this lastly, briefly last time. But notice how we just read through the description of the inner sanctuary, another time where the intensity of this word jumps up and jumps out of a page is in the tabernacle in in Exodus chapter 25, where we find out they should make an ark of Acadia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it. You shall make it a a mold of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold and put it on them and on four feet, two rings on each side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of Arcadia wood and overlay them with gold. 
You shall be poles in the rings and in the sides of the ark and carry them, carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. Remember Uzzah in, in Second Samuel chapter 6. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seed of pure gold. Two cubits shall be its half, shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them. On the two ends of the mercy seat you shall make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece in the mercy seat you shall make the cherubim of its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat of their wings, their faces to one another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony in it I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from beneath, uh, between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give you, uh, the commandment for the people of Israel. So here you see the image of, of the ark, and upon the ark this, this, this box made with gold and overlaid with gold, and the, the testimony is within them, and on top is the mercy seat, where there's actually no seat at all. It's a, it's a void in the image. You have the top of the ark, and then across the ark you have these two cherubim with their wings touching in the middle. And so what Solomon does, he, he builds the inner sanctuary. What he does, he builds the inner sanctuary where the ark will be, where the two cherubim are facing one another with the, the wings in the middle. And above that he puts two cherubim, bigger cherubim, with wings spread out, covering and the sh- overshadowing the wings, overshadowing the two cherubim, overshadowing the ark. And then also notice about what happens in the tabernacle. About the, the curtain there in chapter 26. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on the four pillars of Arcadia wood overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on the four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And there shall separate you a holy place from the most holy, and you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the holy, most holy place. So here Solomon says, how are we going to design this building? He goes back to the tabernacle, how God has instructed them to be able to worship, and he copies that and replicates that in this temple. These two cherubim with the shadow of the wings underneath the ark. He makes a similar pattern on the inner sanctuary. Now, we'll spend a lot of time as we go through this in our morning service when we get up there in the book of Exodus. But maybe just a couple of comments. We need to again notice that here we see all of this built, but there's nothing in all of this that represents God. In all of this, God is a void in the middle. There's no image made of him. He dwells in the midst of these two cherubim. There's nothing there you can say, that is the God that I worship. It's a void. Because God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like man. How can you make an image of God? But also that we see this image, not just in the tabernacle, but right at the very end of Genesis chapter 3. Here you see a picture of what the temple would look like. Uh, the inner parts of the, center, uh, the temple 
You see that inner part, that 20 cubits by 20 cubits up, elevated off the ground with the cherubim there, touching each wall, and then in the middle, the Ark of the Covenant right there in the very middle, replicating those two things there. The veil there is, is, is exactly the blueprint of the tabernacle, just a replica on a larger scale. Uh, you see the storage off to the sides, a very practical thing that we, we spoke of briefly last time with the walls on the sides not protruding into the inner sanctuary. You're keeping the holy place, uh, the holy of holies, the holy place, all separate from that of which is regular and common. But here, again, this, this design is not merely just from the tabernacle. It, it begins right at the very start of Genesis where uh, the Lord said, Behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reached out his hand and taste also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Therefore God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned away to guard the way to the tree of life. So here we have the image again of two cherubim sitting there to be able to protect, or cherubim, um, uh, he placed the cherubim, uh, plural, uh, between to be able to protect them from going in to do this. So here God places, separates from, God, from uh, the sinful people to a holy God, uh, life. Um, uh, here he places these two cherubim with a flaming sword. So here this image is there is to be able to protect sinners from this tree of life, to be able to guard them. And what would happen if a sinful man went to be able to go of either that tree of the, the life? Well, blood would be spilled. Blood would be spilt through the swords. And here that image again is, is what we see here. What's going to happen in this time and time again? Is blood will need to be spilt for a man to be able to enter into this place. Blood would need to be spilt because these, these cherubim signified God's holiness. That even in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, the cherubim are sitting there, holy, holy, holy. They're, they're built, they're made to be able to live in God's presence. They're, they're not sinful creatures, perfect. And yet they, need, they have wings to be able to cover their eyes because of God's glory that covers the whole earth. I think that's where we're going to end tonight. This, but we're going to end with this thought of this inner sanctuary. As we think about it in all of its gold and, and covered in beauty and splendor and awe, great expense uh, that is taken. But all of this is only because one person will enter it once a day, once a year. One person will see this. And even then, He's probably so filled with fear. He goes down with his hands. He sprinkles the blood for his own sin and the priest's sin on the ark, the mercy seat, and, and sprinkles the blood from the people upon this and then leaves. Moments, seconds, he spends in this time performing these tasks. You think of all the, the gold that is shiny overlaid upon this wood. But here, this gold is covered then with splatters of blood. This gold, what looks pristine and clean, 
is covered in blood like a slaughterhouse, made dull with the dark red splots of these bulls and goats that are sprinkled over it. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9, Now we've been the first covenant had regulations for worship in the earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which the lampstand and the table of bread of presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, which was the second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it was the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak now in detail. But here you have the, the, the symbol of God's holiness and perfection and, 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 and glory in, in gold. But here that, that gold is covered in blood. A reminder that how could we ever stand before a holy God? We cannot stand. We'd fall down dead. And the glorious thing is that when we think about this as a broader image, is that here Solomon is the covenantal head that will lead his people astray, that will eventually divide the kingdom. He will fail because he is of Adam. But we have a way not through the covenantal head of Adam, not through the way of the covenantal head of Solomon, but of Jesus, that covenantal head who does obey God perfectly, who fulfills the law, the one who actually goes in to be able to make atonement and sacrifice, the one who sacrifices himself to satisfy the wrath of God. Not a high priest who would go in once a year just sprinkle some blood for his own sins and sins of the people. But the author of Hebrews puts it this way, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence... To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed by pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we to spur one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some in the habit of uh, habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here we see three things that that once we understand the covenantal head as found in Christ, we, we have three approaches in what we are to do. We're we're to draw near. We're to draw near with this true heart of full assurance of faith. Our hearts sprinkled clean from this evil conscience. Our bodies been washed with pure water. We're to draw near to Him. No longer is that divide of this is the place you can go no further. No longer are the cherubim standing there with judgment and, and swords saying, if you come any closer, you will die. Blood has already been spilled that we might be able to draw near with confidence. But the second thing he says that we're to be able to hold fast. That we have this confession of hope that it is not wavering. It's not changing. Because the promise is that, that Christ has already accomplished it. Christ has already paid for us. The third thing is that we're also to be able to spur one another to love and good works. 
That it is not merely just how we approach God, but how we deal with others. That we are to spur one another on. We are to, to look to our brothers and sisters around us and say, come, let us go. Let us worship the God who has come before us. Let us worship and hold fast to this confession without wavering. Let's not neglect meeting together. Let's do this that we might be able to encourage one another, especially as we see the day drawing near. Encourage one another to these love and good works. So here, even in the temple passage, where it seems to speak about cubits and wood (laughs) overlaid with gold, we see a clearer gospel message of hope that we see and look towards Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His Glory and His Gospel.